This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. Today on Government Matters, in the wake of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the United States assembled an unprecedented sanctions campaign to squeeze Russia economically. But how long can it be maintained and how does it end? Then, a new game teaches students how foreign and domestic policy are intertwined and how decisions made in one corner of the world can affect us all. And most of American military support for Ukraine has focused on ground and air defenses. But what about the naval aspect? We zero in on operations in the Black Sea. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news trends and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm Mimi Gerges. The international sanctions coalition against Russia is unprecedented. But as the conflict continues into a possible stalemate, can the U.S. maintain the cohesion among allies and partners? Richard Nephew is former State Department coordinator for sanctions policy, currently a senior research scholar at Columbia University. Richard, welcome to the program. Thanks very much for having me. So what has the sanctions regime against Russia achieved so far? Well, I think it's done two things. Uh, first, you know, obviously there's been uh, considerable economic pressure that's already been uh, brought to bear uh, against Russia. You know, we saw a rapid depreciation of the ruble. We saw companies were exiting Russia. We saw banks were having their assets frozen. So there has been some uh, economic damage that's done. I think the second thing, though, is that Russia has been confronted with the fact that a large part of the international community and the international business sector not only don't approve of what they're doing in Ukraine, but are actively willing to resist it. And I think that's that kind of political messaging has certainly sent some signals into the Kremlin. So let's talk about the energy sector first, because Russia is a major producer of oil and gas. What impacts have the oil and gas sanctions had on the global energy market? And then what happens as this conflict wears on? I think the biggest impact thus far, uh, because the sanctions have been uh, crafted thus far to, to avoid a lot of near-term interruption, is to send a signal to the energy sector that, that more is coming. Uh, I, I think that uh, most energy companies now anticipate that it's only a matter of time until there are much more significant cutbacks in uh, Russian oil and gas exports. And so that sent a signal to the market, find other supplies. Um, it's also sent a signal to the market that uh, business as usual with Russia isn't acceptable either. And so I think in terms of the market, it's definitely set up a risk premium uh, for doing business with Russia, a reputational one, as well as a, a practical one for what sanction steps may come. And that's certainly increased uh, some of the uncertainties and, and probably led to an increase in prices as well. So what can Russia do to retaliate economically to make this more painful for the countries that are imposing sanctions? Well, I think the, the most obvious thing they could do, and they, they've only started toying with it, is to uh, actually just cut off the taps. And it's one of the reasons why the sanctions coalition has been pretty careful about the kinds of steps that it's been willing to take. You know, if Russia were to decide that it wanted to uh, retaliate, it could simply stop exporting oil and gas to, to Europe. And it certainly played with this in the past with uh, gas shutoffs going through Ukraine. That would probably have an immediate impact on oil prices. Uh, you know, the president has been quite clear he wants to insulate American consumers to the extent possible, so of other world leaders. I don't think that'd be possible if Russia were to turn off the taps. And there would be automatically some kind of impact on Russia as well, because they would lose the income from that as well. But, but I think that's the kind of, of threat that the Russians definitely have. You know, a stalemate in the conflict is looking likely if, if we're not already there. 
What does that mean for the sanctions regime, given that it not only hurts the Russian economy, it negatively impacts the world economy? Well, I think this is part of the reason why the sanctions coalition has taken a, if not slow, because they've certainly acted quickly in the first weeks of the of the, of the crisis, uh, but a deliberate approach to the uh, expansion of sanctions. I think that they anticipate that this is a conflict that's going to go on for quite some time, that there's going to be a moment in which they're going to need to continue to ratchet up, and that this need for incrementalism uh, you know, requires that they hold something uh, back in reserve. And I think that um, the, the second thing that's going to come with it, of course, is that uh, the, the impacts of the uh, the sanctions uh, on on energy are going to drive production in other places and trying to source uh, from other places. So long term, Russia is actually going to be the loser here uh, because if other people find other sources that aren't dependent on the Russians, that leaves them out in the cold. So a big part of sanctions is enforcement. Are these sanctions being rigorously enforced at this point? I think you know it's still relatively early on in the the sanctions campaign to make a good assessment of that. I, I think that there certainly has been messaging around it to uh, uh, try and get enforcement to be improved. Uh, I think that finding enough evidence of breaches uh, does take time, both in terms of intelligence gathering and and finding information on open markets. I, I think that um, enforcement is certainly going to be a priority in the next couple of months. Uh, but right now, I wouldn't say we know enough. So, you know, the president has released um, uh, the strategic oil reserves. Is there anything else that the U.S. can do to soften the impacts of sanctions on allies and partners? Well, I think one of the main things is what the administration's already been trying to do, which is to help uh, find alternative sources and to encourage uh, partners that could increase production uh, to do so. There's certainly also been uh, talk about increased production here in the United States with this controversy a little bit about what's going on with the leases that have already been uh, granted to oil companies. So I think finding alternative uh, sources is certainly going to be the, the key priority. And then, you know, helping to, to you know manage the impacts by making sure the sanctions are deliberate. That, that more than anything, probably is the best tool the United States has at present. Richard, I want to ask you about the European Union, um, because those decisions are made by consensus. But the impact on individual countries might be very uneven. Does the U.S. have a role to play, or is that a European problem? Well, the U.S. definitely has a role to play in terms of, of talking with these various countries and explaining its strategy uh, and uh, helping to explain how it's going to help manage any of the consequences that come from it. Ultimately, the decisions are going to be made in Brussels, but I think that many European countries are going to be looking to make sure the United States is going to stick through the campaign, is going to support them, is going to make sure that China and India are not allowed to backfill for you know contracts that are uh, you know left behind by European companies and that they're going to work with other partners outside of Europe. So I think that the main thing the U.S. can do is to demonstrate to those European countries that you're not alone uh, and that we're going to have your back both in the conflict and in working with other partners around the world. All right. Well, Richard, we'll see what happens with this. Uh, this conflict looks like it's going to be for a while. Thanks so much for being on the program. Thank you. Coming up, explaining how U.S. foreign policy is made to the next generation of government leaders. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News.
The Council on Foreign Relations has a new interactive game called Convene the Council. It has students assume the role of the president and offers them different foreign policy scenarios. Carolyn Najvoladov is the Vice President of Education at the Council on Foreign Relations. Caroline, welcome to the program. Well, thank you for having me. I look forward to, to talking about Convene the Council. All right, so describe the game for us and who the intended audience is. Sure. Uh, the game is a video game. It's interactive. Uh, the intended audience is students between middle school and uh, upper high school. But the fact is it's appropriate for their parents and for all of us as well. So, But that's the sweet spot, anyone 12 and up. And, and tell me about the game itself. The game is a, um, it is a foreign policy game intended to help students understand uh, how foreign policy is made in the United States, how the president uh, hears from his advisors about any given issue, whether it's a refugee issue, open conflict, climate change, a global health crisis. And uh, it walks students through the very uh, complicated set of inputs and uh, considerations that the president has to make in addressing any issue that might be on the table and which happens to be many issues on any given day. So it's not as if the president is focusing only on Ukraine or only on climate change. It's a every day, it's a, it's a triaging event for the president of the United States. Are there right answers and wrong answers in the game? Because in real life, it's, it's usually not that clear. What a great question. No, there are very, it's very rare that there's a right or wrong answer. And we do teach students that that is the case uh, in this game. Um, as we know, foreign policy issues are quite complicated. And the word messy is a little bit casual to describe, a, a, you know, an extreme uh, foreign policy crisis, but they're all complicated. Um, and so, the president draws on his advisors on the National Security Council, convene the council, put students in the role of the president, and then avatars play the role of his advisors, whether it's the department, the secretary of defense, the secretary of treasury, energy, and so forth. And each of those advisors brings his or her own agenda to the table in advising, in advising the uh, president. So you can imagine that the, the secretary of defense has a different set of uh, priorities and a different agenda than, for instance, the secretary of the treasury or uh, the Secretary of Energy. So the hope is that in having a, a body of individuals who are thinking about any given issue from a different perspective, the president will draw on expertise from different areas in helping uh, educate him uh, about uh, the situation on the ground and lead him to the best decision that, uh, or I should say, lead him or her to the best decision that he or she can make um, in thinking about a decision, um, a specific decision or a proactive decision, like what to do about climate change? What should our policy be? Or it could be what happened in Ukraine today and what do we do about this? How do we rally our allies? What are the best decisions? And as you pointed out, there is no, there is no answer. And so, Caroline, uh, what, what's the ultimate objective of the game and, and how does that fit into your mission at the Council on Foreign Affairs? Thanks foreign for relations, asking. Sorry. <laughs> it, 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 no, it's the Council on Foreign Relations, but we deal with foreign affairs. Um, 
The mission of the education uh, effort at the council is to help educate and inform non-experts about the world and what's going on in it and what the United States role in the world is. We also try to uh, inform students and the interested public about the relationship between domestic and foreign policy because that's often lost in the discussion. Uh, they're very much related. So for instance, when you have uh, when you're making decisions about what to do in terms of sanctions uh, with um, Russia, that has huge implications, as we all know, uh, on um, consumer prices, on availability of goods. Uh, and so they're, they're interrelated. Um, and it's a very uh, complicated um, interweaving of foreign and domestic issues. So what we are trying to do with not just convene the council, but with our two other uh, products, which are World 101 and Model Diplomacy, is we're trying to build a more informed public, a more globally literate public, if you will. And we consider our body of work, so Convene the Council is the entry point for students as young as middle school. And then we have World 101, which is a, um, it's a, it's a multimedia, um, it's a course that is divided into five units. Each unit is divided into modules and we teach about global era issues, regions of the world, uh, the building blocks of foreign policy, foreign affairs, which are uh, topics like sovereignty and nationalism. We have a, a, a very important, I would say, unit on history, modern history. How did we get where we are today? Um, and then the final unit is on the tools and approaches of foreign policy and the making of US foreign policy. So through this uh, interactive platform again, which is filled with videos, charts, graphs, maps, we try to teach through accessible content, stories, if you will, uh, th how the world works. So in order to explain a global supply chain, we trace the path of a Converse sneaker, something that we all think of as, a, as an all American product. Um, in its how it's created. So the laces may come from one part of the world, the rubber from another part. And so using these stories that students in particular can relate to, we try to teach about, we try to engage them and teach about how all of this fits together. And in the end, uh, to answer your question very precisely, we're trying to build a, we're trying, we're helping to build, I hope, a more informed citizenry who can choose the right uh, or the or not the right but choose the the candidate for public office whether it be a local office or the president who um who shares their values caroline we'll leave it at that thank you so much for joining us coming next does nato have a naval strategy what the u.s can do to support ukraine's naval forces you're watching wjla 24 7 news Much of the attention on U.S. support for Ukraine focuses on air and missile defense. But ignoring the naval aspect of the conflict would be a mistake. That's according to Arthur Herman. He's a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute. Arthur, welcome to the program. Pleasure to be here. 
So what ships does Russia have in the Black Sea off the coast of Ukraine? And what's the danger those ships pose? Well, the latest intelligence suggests that they probably have about 25 to 30 ships. Um, they may be missing a couple because in the last few days, Ukrainians have been successful at hitting and possibly destroying some of those Russian naval ships, you know, particularly a, um, a landing, amphibious landing ship uh, for carrying heavy equipment. Um, but the danger we've got here is that these are ships that are really positioned for amphibious landings, for supporting uh, troops landing along the Ukrainian coast in Black Sea. And you know, the reason I wrote this piece for the Wall Street Journal and thought it was important to bring this out is, is that right now it's looking like there's a stalemate between Ukrainian and Russian forces, Ukrainians even pushing back. And unless there's a bigger strategy, and this is the point of my article, a larger NATO strategy about how to uh, project power and NATO's influence in the whole Black Sea region. And Arthur, I want to ask about that NATO strategy, but before, can you give us an idea of why access to the Black Sea is so important to Russia? Well, it's it's been hugely important for the last 200 years because it's through the Black Sea and the Turkish Straits, um, the Dardanelles and the Bosporus, uh, that Russian shipping is able to pass to the Mediterranean and then to the larger world. And for, uh, for many years, this was important for Russian grain exports, particularly from Ukraine when it was part of the Russian Empire. So Russia has always seen the Black Sea as being one of its vital national interest uh, regions. And Arthur, why is it important for Ukraine to keep control of that access? And how does this really impact American interests, if at all? Well, it impacts American interests in a number of ways, but let's talk about Ukraine first. Um, if Ukraine becomes landlocked, if, for example, the Russians land and are able to take uh, Odessa and the western portion of the country and its port facing onto the Black Sea and then to the wider world, as well as having captured Kurzon. The Black Sea coast and those ports, like Odessa, are Ukraine's window to the West and a way in which it can continue to be part of the global uh, economic order and global economic system. Now, for the United States, this is important because as part of NATO, as really the leaders of NATO, we need to make sure that the Black Sea doesn't become, in effect, a Russian lake. We've got other NATO members which are perched along that coast, including Bulgaria, including Romania, as well as Turkey, who really controls uh, the, the access uh, back and forth to the Black Sea. But as I pointed out in my Wall Street Journal article, NATO ships access to the Black Sea so we can show the flag and show the Russians that they don't control that part of the world uh, in, on a maritime basis. And as you said before, Ukraine actually sunk a Russian ship. What capabilities do they have to take on the Russian Navy? Well, they've got a number of anti-ship missiles that they can use. And one of the things that I've been urging them to do is to, for the U.S. to do and NATO, is to keep Ukraine supplied with those anti-ship missiles. It forces the Russians uh, to stand back from the coast out of range of those, of those attacks. And at the same time, uh, it also... Uh, keeps Ukraine uh, in the game, as it were, with regard to the war at sea here. And that's going to be important 
not just, as I say, for Ukraine's future, but also for making sure that NATO is seen as a counterbalancing influence to Russian power in the Black Sea region. It's very important that Russia doesn't, and the Russian Navy, don't see uh, in access in and out of the Black Sea as something that they do uh, with impunity. We've got to prevent that. Well, let's talk a little bit more about Turkey's role in this. Would they be willing to close the Turkish Straits to Russian ships, or would they be afraid of Russian retaliation? And frankly, is it too late at this point? Well, by international convention, uh, which Turkey has signed, and also Russia, as the former Soviet Union signed, um, Turkey should prevent warships belonging to belligerent nations engaged in a war from passing through its straits and getting access to the Black Sea. That's the law. Turkey needs to uphold that law. Uh, Russia uh, tried to send reinforcements uh, from the Baltic region through the Turkish Straits into the Black Sea. And Turkey said, no, you're engaged in a war with Ukraine. And just as we don't let Ukrainian naval vessels uh, pass through our Straits, we're not going to let yours as well. And the Russians back down. Good for them. Good for the Turks for holding the line on this. But what's also important is that the convention, which allows warships of other nations that are not engaged in the war, who are not belligerents, allows them to pass. And that means American ships. That means British and French vessels. It means that we should have, and, and by law, have the right to establish a strong NATO naval presence in the Black Sea in ways that will make the Russians think twice about both the operations that they conduct right now in Ukraine, but also about their larger strategy in dealing with NATO and this very vital front for everybody. All right. Well, Arthur, I appreciate you being on the program. Thank you so much for joining us. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website at govmatters.tv. And tell us what you thought about today's program. Send us your comments on LinkedIn. You can follow us at Government Matters Media. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people, in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years 
have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable, include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5, because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service. It is, it is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in 2016, and even an earlier version of it, Gen, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high-throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers, as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to, to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's gonna be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi. Nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff. Our managing director is Jerry Foley. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.